All right, so this is week five, part five in our Purple Faith series, and we're going to get into agreement number two tonight. Last week, we talked about agreement number one, as a human being made in God's image, I will treat other humans with dignity and respect. We're looking at higher callings of the gospel for as answers for the division that we see in the world today. So we want to be, we want to be people who are, are rising above the division and the spite and the angst and the frustration and the arguments that are going on on a day-to-day basis and be able to be peacemakers and bring reconciliation wherever we can. And so we, to do that, we have to have a higher calling. We have to be drawn to something higher than everything that's going on down in life today. So this is agreement number two. In my middle school days and my early high school years, I was desperate to fit in somewhere. If you've been around for very long, you know I was never the cool kid. I never, in fact, I never got invited to a high school party. So um, all that, everything, anything I know about high school parties is anything I've seen on movies, and I'm assuming that's accurate because I was never invited to one. So I, I, you know, I was just never, I was never the cool kid. I never fit in, and I was desperate to fit in. Unfortunately, I was late to the game in, in elementary school. We went to Christian kindergarten. My dad was the director of a Christian school in Jackson, Ohio, uh, Good Shepherd, or is the church, Christian Life Academy was the name of the school. So I went there for kindergarten. All I remember about going there for kindergarten was I learned about the boogeyman during recess, and I got spanked for lying about doing my homework because I hadn't done my work during class, and I said I did, so I got spanked by the kindergarten teacher. And I got spanked by my mom when I got home from school, and I got spanked by my dad when he got home from work. So that's what I remember about going to Christian Life Academy. I'm sure it's a great place today, but that's what I remember. But I went there during kindergarten while all the other kids were in their public school kindergartens, and so I didn't, you know, get inter, uh, mixed in with all the kids during that season. So when I came in during the first grade, I was, you know, was an outsider, but for some reason, you know, that, that meant that I was never allowed in, or at least for me, I was never allowed into the circle. And they're just like all these clubs of kids, and I was just the outsiders. Like I was at the zoo traveling from exhibit to z- exhibit, watching how the di- different species worked with one another and treated one another, and I could observe, but I was never invited from being observer to participant. As many middle schoolers do, I tried some things along the way. I tried playing hard at recess so that, you know, I could could impress the other kids. I could be competitive on their teams when they were playing games. I tried joking around with different groups of kids, which is probably why I feel the strong, you know, uh, compulsive need to try to be funny to this day. I tried once, there was, this, there was always a race to the front of the line to come back into the school building at the end of recess, and I tried racing to the front of that line and winning the race, and that ended up costing me seven stitches because I fell down and cut my knee. But perhaps one of the most desperate things that I did one year was 
pretending to need glasses. I pretended that I needed glasses for a while. I didn't need glasses, to be honest. I had really good eyesight. You know, there was a, a bank clock, you know, those clocks the banks used to have that flash between the temperature and the time. Did they have those around here? Was that a Midwest thing? So we had this clock at the, at the Oak Hill Bank and uh, was the name of the bank, and we could see it from our backyard, but no one could read what it said, but I could read what it said. I had, I had pretty good eyesight. So I, didn't, I did not need glasses, but I pretended like I did. So, and around this time, the late 80s, the early 90s was when I was in, uh, I was in middle school and early high school. There was a show that came on after the Cosby show. Anyone remember this show? Called A Different World. Remember? So there was a character on this show whose name was Dwayne Wayne. For some reason, I really liked Dwayne Wayne. I thought he was a cool character. He was the funny guy on the show, and he had cool glasses. I thought they were pretty cool. Remember? Do you remember his glasses? Yeah, I thought, I thought they were pretty cool glasses. They were perfectly round, just like these ones. They had the flip-up sunglasses. And I was convinced, absolutely convinced, if I could, if I could wear these glasses... It would make me cool like Dwayne Wayne. We were on a trip that year out here to the Pacific Northwest, and we went to the Saturday market down in Portland. And uh, on our trip to the Saturday market, I just happened to see this, this display of all these glasses. And one of the sets of glasses was a set of Dwayne Wayne glasses, except that the sunglasses were purple instead of brown like this, but that was, they didn't have the normal ones, so I just I bought those, and I, I thought, I, I think if I start wearing these, it'll make me cool. So I decided to wear them to school, pretending that I needed glasses, and that of all the glasses that you've ever seen anyone wear when they've gone to the eye doctor, especially at this point in time, the late 80s and the early 90s, of all the glasses that anyone has normally been prescribed, these are the glasses that the doctor prescribed for me. But it didn't take long for the other students to figure out that I was lying. I don't know if it was the purple on the flip-up sunglasses or just the, the fact that there were flip-ups to begin with. I think that there's probably some kind of initiation into wearing glasses when you get your glasses as a kid that the eye doctor takes you through and that they teach you to spot the posers. And they say, if you ever see anyone wearing flip-up glasses claiming that they're real, expose them. They are not wearing real glasses. You wear the real glasses. So I wore the glasses for a little while, and it didn't work out. Now, today, I actually do need to wear glasses. I'm, I'm struggling to read my notes right now. I went through a season of ministry where I'm pretty sure uh, the stress of that season of ministry caused me to need to see glasses, but I'm going to keep wearing them for just a few minutes until my eyes start watering too bad that I, I have to take them off.
they are starting to water just a little bit, though. Now, if, I, if I'm being honest, I would love, I would still honestly love to get a pair of these glasses and wear them as my glasses. I don't think my wife is going to let me get away with that. But I think that would be awesome. I mean, can, can anyone support me? Like, wouldn't it be cool if I could wear these glasses on a regular basis? Like, and then... And then I could set a trend, right? I could start a trend of people wearing cool glasses with flip-ups, and then you like see it everywhere, and they think, oh, that's a really good idea. Then you don't ever have to carry around the sunglasses. You just, you just got them right there. You're golden, right? I think this could be really good, but I do have to take them off for the time being. What's my point with the glasses? We all see the world through a pre-existing set of glasses. We all look at one another through a lens of some kind. We look at the world, we look at society, we look at countries, we look at everything that's going on in the world today, every, every single piece of information that we take in, we look at it through a set of glasses. The, harder, the hardest part about these glasses that we look at is that we don't realize how much misinformation has crept into the lenses that we wear. We don't realize how shaded our sight is. We don't realize how much has come in front of our ability to see things clearly. Truth be told, we may never know the full extent to which misinformation has crept into our ability to see the world. The way our perception has been altered by deception. But instead of correcting our eyesight, the lenses that we wear only give us the misperception that we're seeing clearly. Things look clear to us. When we look at the world, things look clear. But the truth is, all that is clear to us is what our pre-existing glasses make clear to us, and there's an entire world around us that we do not see clearly. It's as though we flip down these sunglasses, but instead of blocking the UV light from our eyes, they block our ability to see the world objectively. From a very young age, we can become blinded by misinformation. I was blinded by misinformation and wearing glasses that I thought if I wore these glasses, it would make me cool enough to fit in to the glasses-wearing crowd at my school, which tells you just how desperate I was to fit in because traditionally, the kids who wear glasses are not the cool kids. But I thought if I could fit in with the glasses wearers, I would at least fit in with somebody in the school instead of being an outsider. But there was some misperception in my thinking that gave me that idea. Now, that was just a lie, right? There's a web of misperception that all the other kids in my school looked through as well that caused them to categorize me as uncool for whatever reason. When the reality is, I mean, I was no more uncool than they were. At least that's what I tell myself. No, I wasn't, I wasn't any more uncool than they were. You didn't know me at that point in time, so you can't say. But I'm going to just tell you, I wasn't any less cool. 
I do think maybe there's a Bible of coolness that some kids are born with, like you inherit this from your parents and you get this Bible of coolness that's passed down from generation to generation and the golden rule in the Bible, like when you open it, the first thing it says is never share this Bible with anyone who doesn't already have a copy. If you have a copy, I'd like to, like to get my hands on it so I could figure out what I'm missing out on, but this, I think that's for real. The thing about this misinformation is our, our ability to see things clearly doesn't necessarily get better as we get older, at least not on its own. It only gets better when we intentionally seek to see what we can't currently see. Our ability to see things clearly only gets better when we intentionally seek to see what we can't currently see. Right? So this isn't going to fix itself on its own. We have to become intentional. Now, I grew up in Ohio, and there are all these signs. In fact, that there are even license plates in Ohio that say, Ohio, the birthplace of aviation. Now, if I were to ask you tonight, where, where, was, where was aviation formed? Where, where, where were the Wright brothers? North Carolina. Someone said North Carolina, right? That is true, but it's only true for like a couple of weeks of their entire career. They only went to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to test the plane that they built and developed and did all the work in in Dayton, Ohio, right? So all of their work was done there. They went to Kitty Hawk because of the wind. They needed the wind, and that was a place that had, that had enough wind to be able to test, fly, test the flight itself. But all of the research, the trials and errors, they even built a wind tunnel in Dayton to test all of the gliders. All of that happened in Ohio. So Ohio is the birthplace of aviation, even though most people would ascribe aviation, the birthplace of aviation to North Carolina. But the birthplace of misinformation actually goes back a long ways. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. We've covered it a lot of times, but I don't think we've covered it nearly enough. I probably could preach on it every single Sunday, and we still could talk a lot more about this chapter. Genesis chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up there. We're going to start in verse 1. Some of this is coming out of the New English translation, the Net Bible. Others, other parts of it through the NIV. So if you have the app and you want to open to the Net Bible, you can see some of the same things that I'm seeing. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was shrewder than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. This word shrewder is important to pay attention to. It's a wordplay, it's a connection to a word that actually was spoken at the end of Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, when it says that they were naked. So Genesis 2, 25 says they were naked. Schroeder at the beginning of chapter 3 connects back to that word, and that's an important connection because that tells us whether or not the word is being used in a prudent, positive way, a positive way like saying prudent or wise, or if it's being in a negative way like cunning. It's being used in a negative way because of its connection to the word naked. 
The serpent was trying. He saw their nakedness, or more likely, not just that they were physically naked, but that they were oblivious to their state. Basically, their eyes were closed. They were not able to see what, what the serpent saw. That's how Scripture talks about it, that their eyes were closed. They couldn't see everything the way the serpent saw. So the serpent was shrewd, and he wanted to go after this one particular part of the integrity of Adam and Eve, which was that they were oblivious to their condition. Their eyes were closed. So the serpent says to the woman, Is it really true that God said, You must not eat from any tree of the orchard? Some of your translations might say, Did God really say? That's a good translation. A more literal translation is, is it really true? Is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree of the orchard? Is it? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree, from any tree of the orchard? Did God say that? Is that true or false? False. God did not say they couldn't eat from any tree. Right? That's not what God said. So we've just, if we're just, you know, if we're good Bible students, we've just read Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Then we come to Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent says, is it really true that God said you must not eat from any tree in the orchard? A good Bible student would say, well, hang on a second. That's not true. That's not what God really said. Well, what did God say? So we may eat of the fruit from the trees of the orchard, but concerning the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the orchard, God said you must not eat from it and you must not touch it or else you will die. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the middle of the garden, there were two trees. There's the tree of life and next to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent said to the woman, Surely you will not die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Your eyes will open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. More misinformation from the serpent. Surely you won't die. Well, God had said they would die. What harm, Eve, what, what harm can come from eating a piece of fruit? I mean, you're not going to die just because you ate from this one tree, are you? No. Come on, that's not the reason God told you not to eat from that fruit. The real reason is that God is holding out on you, Eve. He's insecure. He doesn't, he doesn't want any other gods competing with him. So, so he told you not to eat from that tree because he knows that if you do, you'll become just like him, knowing good and evil. In other words, according to the serpent, the only reason God said not to eat from this tree is to try to keep you, Eve, and Adam out of his domain. He doesn't want any competition as God. In essence, what the serpent is saying is, you can't trust God. 
You can't trust God, Eve. Look at what he said to you. His motives aren't pure. He's selfish. He's insecure. No one can trust a God that's insecure. You can't trust God's motives. His motives are impure. Well, as you probably know, if you're very familiar with this story, the serpent gets his way and Eve does eat the fruit. And as a result, the eyes of both of them were opened. So there was some truth in what the serpent said, right? And they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In other words, they hid. Previously, they had been naked and unashamed. Now they had to hide themselves because their eyes had now been opened to shame. So what was it that introduced shame to the story of Adam and Eve and all humanity? It's misinformation. Now you might be wrestling with, who says that the serpent is the devil? I wrestled with that question for a while but I feel like I've come with a a good explanation that that defends that. Traditionally, the church holds that the serpent is the devil, devil, so that helps. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, the great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. That sounds pretty clear to me. So the devil is the ancient serpent, and what he does, the job description of the devil His role, what it is that he does, is he leads the whole world astray. The devil's job description is deception. Jesus said in a debate with the Pharisees about uh, why they are the way they are, said, if God were your father, so Jesus is talking. Sorry, this is not God. Yes, this this is Jesus talking. If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I've not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The reason Jesus' language was not clear to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees was According to Jesus, they didn't belong to God. The devil is a liar. It's his native tongue. That's what he does. Most of us, at least many of us in this room, our native tongue is English. When I talk to myself in my head, when I mess up and I do something, like on the on, uh, what was it, Saturday, Friday. On Friday, I was planing a board out in the shop. 
and the board was coming out, and I reached down to grab the board, but I put my hand down in between the board and the last roller, not even thinking about it, because the, the planer has, you know, it has an auto feed to it, so it's forcing the board through the planer, right, so it doesn't get stuck there. And so the board is being forced through, and I reached down to grab the board, but it wasn't co finished coming through the planer yet, so the feed pushed my hand right into that last roller, and I said to myself, you idiot! <laughs> you know better than that. Nothing's going to stop that board. Why didn't you wait until it was done coming through? And I said that to myself in my head in English, <coughs> because that is my native tongue. I do it in my native language. Most of us, when we talk to ourselves in our heads, we do it in our native tongue. The devil's native tongue is deception. It's misinformation. And he's good at it. He's been doing it for a long time. He's, he's been deceiving people for tens of thousands of years. That's what the devil does. He's good at his native language. I'm pretty good at English. I'm still learning things about English. I still don't understand why you're not allowed to end a sentence with a preposition. But the fact that the devil is a liar is a truth you can be sure of. That's some real high-level grammar comedy right there. Of is a principle, and I ended the sentence in it. So, all right. I'm going to prove that I'm funny one of these days. Somebody's actually going to laugh of their own accord. This whole room will just be filled with laughter. <laughs> Thank you, Sydney. I am cool. I appreciate that. Um, so the devil's native tongue is deception. Jesus said... There is no truth in him. It's not there. He might say things that have some truth to them, but what he's saying is untrue. It's misinformation. That is what he does. So for one, if the enemy is coming after you to attack you and he's giving you ideas that are not true, stop looking for truth inside the misinformation because the devil is not speaking truth. Just stop listening to what he says. It's a side note for a different sermon, but my brother and I were talking about that, and that's a good point. I think my, uh, my sister-in-law, Tamala, said that. Stop looking for truth there. Jesus, continuing on, he said, If you hold to my teaching, by the way, this is John chapter 8, if you're wanting to know where all this is coming from. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So how are we set free from whatever bondage we're in because of the devil's lies and deception and our own desire to rebel against God and decide for ourselves what is good and evil? How do we get set free from that? By holding to Jesus' teaching. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. So if the son, Jesus, sets you free from the bondage to sin and our bondage to deciding for ourselves what is good and evil, if he sets us free from that, we are free indeed. Jesus has set us free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to trying to determine for ourselves what is good and evil. We've been set free from all of that. And if you've tried to figure out for yourselves what is right and wrong in life, you know what a burden and what a weight that is. And Jesus sets us free from that weight and that burden of trying to determine what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. And he just takes that off of our shoulders and he says, come, follow me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sin is rebelling. It's rebelling against God. It's not trusting God. Sin, according to Genesis chapter 3, is also deciding to do things our own way instead of God's way, trying to define for ourselves what is good and evil instead of letting God decide. Sin is when we give in to the devil's misinformation. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age, that's the devil, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, like we talked about last week. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the true image of God. Unbelievers are unable to see the light of the gospel. Theoretically, those of us who are believers, Christians who've been saved by Jesus, should be able to know and live by the truth. The problem is we've been willingly putting ourselves under the tutelage of the prince of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, who is in control of the world, 1 John 5, 19. The prince of the air is Satan, and he's in control of the world. The world is the, the system and structures that are all around us that are opposed to God. We see it every day before our eyes. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should, we ought to be seeing more and more clearly as we gain more and more understanding of Scripture, which is God's truth, and the original foundation that God built the whole world upon, Proverbs 3, verse 19. The truth is, instead of seeking to understand God's foundation for all of creation and trusting in the Lord with all of our hearts, sometimes we choose to be wise in our own eyes and lean on our own understanding. We might allow God's truth to enlighten us for a moment on a Sunday morning, but it doesn't take long for us to put back on our Dwayne Wayne sunglasses and start seeing the world through the lenses of misinformation. Just like Eve found herself drawn into a conversation with the devil when she was standing in the middle of God's paradise where she talked with God on a daily basis. And if that doesn't just blow your mind, I want to repeat it. Just like Eve, standing in the middle of God's paradise that we cannot imagine how amazing God's paradise was, Eve, standing in the middle of this paradise where she had regular conversations with God who walked in the garden on a regular basis, 
like Eve found herself pulled into a conversation with a talking snake, we too, though we have been redeemed and we've been brought out of darkness into the light, we can find ourselves drawn into misinformation, trying to put back on chains that we've been set free from. So let's talk about this really quick. I want to, I want to try to explain, and I apologize. What time is it? There is no way I'm going to get through everything tonight. Um, so I'm going to do my best to get to a certain point, and then I'm going to have to finish the rest of it on workplace or something, um, do part two, so that we can, we can end at a normal time this evening. I've said for years, the enemy's two primary tactics are ideas and isolation. I shouldn't do this, but does anyone remember that? Okay, a couple people, good. I apparently have not said that one nearly enough either. The enemy's two primary tactics are ideas and isolation. If he can get us alone, obsessing over an idea, he's got us right where he wants us. If he can get us alone by ourselves, thinking about an idea over and over and over again, we're right in the enemy's hand. Neurologically speaking, I want to talk just a little bit about how the brain works because I find it incredibly insightful when we're talking about these kinds of things. Hopefully you'll, you'll share my excitement. We as people, as human beings, act in accordance with our beliefs. Our deep-seated beliefs, or what we might call our values, are what govern and guide us on a day-in, day-out basis. In fact, when it comes to this, the part of our brain responsible for emotions and social judgments, hang with me, let me try to explain this. I, could, I wasn't even looking and I could feel the eyes glossing over, I could hear it. So hang with me. Let, me. let me try to explain this. I should, I should have had a picture, but I couldn't find a good picture that showed these three parts of the brain. All right, so this, the, the, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. So we're, making, we're talking about making social judgments. We're looking at the world and making a social judgment on what's happening in the world. This is the process that happens. Three parts of the brain that are involved in this process. The ventromedial prefrontal cortex tells our brain to bypass what is called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is the region of our brain which is responsible for self-control and deliberation. So this prefrontal cortex, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, is responsible for self-control Deliberation, decision-making. So when we're in a situation where we're making a social value judgment, the prefrontal cortex tells the normal prefrontal cortex to skip over that part, don't engage your decision-making, don't engage your deliberative thoughts, 
And instead, it sends the, the brain's functioning and processing over to what is called the inferior frontal gyrus, which is the part of our brain responsible for rule retrieval. So you've got, you're taking in some kind of information, right? Let me see if I can explain this and bring it down to a real-world level. You're taking in some kind of information. There's three part of the brains. You've got this ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which receives the information and, and is going to then tell the brain what to do with that information. And when it's something that's related to one of our underlying deep-seated beliefs and values, it bypasses the decision-making rational thought part of our brain and instead sends it to our rule brain, the part of our brain that's responsible for rules. So the truth is, when something comes at us that's, that's hitting on one of our deep-seated beliefs and values, as much as we'd like to say we are those people who, who really think through everything on a deep level, our brain actually doesn't even send the information there. It sends it to this value part of our brain, which is a great thing. It's a great design because once something has become a core value in our life, we don't need to wrestle with it on a regular basis. It makes the brain much more efficient at dealing with things as they come up. It's, it's how God designed our brain to work. But He designed our brain to work in that rule function, that rule part of our brain with His values, with His wisdom, with His structures stored in that part of our brain not the misinformation and all the ideas that have been put there over the years. So we make these value judgments based on whatever is stored in the rule retrieval part of our brain, which is where our sacred values are stored. Sacred values are good. We have many sacred values in Christianity, right? We have sacred values that, that guide us on a weekly basis, like communion. And communion lays the foundation for rituals that we practice. Communion, not just the bread and the cracker, but the idea of, being, of communing together with God as we're gathered here this evening. Communion would be a sacred value. And that, that value then sends us into some rituals like the breaking of bread and drinking of juice, worship, mission, community, fellowship, personal righteousness, and so on. We have another value like generosity. That would be a, va a biblical value. And that value of generosity then lays the foundation for other rituals like caring for the vulnerable, which is important. Carrying one another's burdens, like we're supposed to as followers of Jesus Christ, and expressing the deep love that God has for the world through generosity. It's a sacred value. It's a good thing. We want to have sacred values. And for Christians, most of our sacred values have been formed over millennia, over thousands of years, and they've been passed down to us through Scripture and they've been passed down through us through church leaders and church traditions. But that doesn't mean, because we have these sacred values, that we aren't still creating 
new sacred values, which is, I think, something that's been going on a lot in the world lately. So how does an idea that we just read one day become a sacred value? Well, let me walk you through it. This is based on uh, several different articles and journals that I tried to boil down into a process. I hope this is accurate, but I'm not a neuroscientist, so it could be wrong. But based on what I read, I think this is pretty, pretty close. It starts with an idea, just like in your garden you start with a seed, right? We plant a seed. Ideas are often like seeds. If you want to read more about that, go read Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through 20. You can see how the Word itself is a seed that gets planted. And I just about went down that whole road, but I didn't have time, so we'll leave it at that. There's the planting of a seed, the planting of an idea. So you read an idea, you read information, you watch the news, you, you watch a movie, you listen to a song. We have to be very careful about where these ideas are getting put in our head, and they get planted in our mind. And a lot of times it's the repetitive ones, the ones that we hear over and over again that start to get planted in our mind. But truthfully, as long as the idea stays just a seed that's been put into our mind and it doesn't go any further than that, it doesn't have a lot of danger to us and our beliefs. It's the rest of the process that actually turns it into a value. So the next step, the next part of planting an idea into our heads is the, what I call the pollination of the idea. It's community. It's when we find ourselves around other people who think the same way as we do when it comes to this new idea. By the way, this whole process is, is amoral. What I mean is it's not, it's not good or bad. It's just how things work. It can work in good, positive ways like it does in the church. Right? This is, you can see, you'll see good ways for discipleship to happen when we're going through this process, but it also can be used against us. So the idea is planted in our heads, then that idea becomes pollinated by community. Is anyone familiar with the idea of love bombing? So love bombing is an attempt, this is from Wikipedia, love bombing is an attempt to influence a person by demonstrations of attention and affection. It can be used in different ways and for either positive or negative purposes. Psychologists have identified love bombing as a possible part of a cycle of abuse and have warned against it. It has also been described as psychological manipulation in order to create a feeling of unity within a group against a society perceived as hostile. Love bombing can be good, it can be bad, it can be manipulative can be good. I would say it's good in a church to do some love bombing. We want to love people as well as we can, love them into the kingdom. I think that's a great approach. But cults have also been known to use love bombing. Anyone familiar with Jim Jones? If you want an absolutely depressing show to watch, if you want to just like have all of the joy sucked out of your life for a couple of weeks, there's a, a documentary on Jim Jones uh, that you can watch. It's awful. I used to use drink the Kool-Aid kind of as a joke, 
But if you watch that documentary, you'll never use that joke again. It's, it's just, it was it's a, an atrocity. I grew up Wesleyan, and most Wesleyans wouldn't want you to know this, but he actually got his start in the Wesleyan church, but then he couldn't, he couldn't get what he wanted in the Wesleyan church, so he ended up leaving off and going his own direction. So the Wesleyan church ended up kind of being good for kicking him out. But you know who Jim Jones is, right? So Jim Jones ended up on the West Coast in San Francisco, I believe, and he started a cult. And then he was getting too much pressure from the government for how dangerous his cult was becoming, so that he ended up moving down somewhere in Central America and starting, was it Jones? What? Jonestown. And then poisoned his entire following with cyanide by drinking Kool-Aid. Cults like... Jim Jones cult, have also used love bombing. You enter a group, they surround you with a lot of love and acceptance and fellowship. They surround you with a lot of pleasantries like gifts and flowers and other forms of extravagance. This happened in their cult. And they come around you in such a way so that you think, this is amazing. It's incredible. I've never experienced community like this in my life. Why would I ever want to go back to what I knew before? The same thing happens now on social media. They call it social media love bombing. (coughs) Sorry. Still have a little tickle in my throat. So you get ideological groups, and you get a newcomer to the ideological group, and they want to start tweeting on Twitter uh, all their support of this idea, of this ideology, whatever it might be. And they go out there and they do it for several months and they're not getting any followers and they come back to the group, you know, to the group forum, wherever they're talking, whichever group, whichever site is facilitating that. And and they complain, I've been tweeting about this for months, but I've only got 100 followers. Well, members then of the community, when they see messages, they're, they're trained and taught when they see a message like that to go follow this person's social media account, giving them thousands and thousands of new followers in a very short period of time, making that new person, that newbie, feel loved and accepted by the group, and now they feel like all of a sudden they have an audience for the things that they've been trying to say. It's another form of love bombing that's taking place in our social media context. That's the pollination of the idea. You, you find an idea, and then you, you go to the community, you find the community that's talking about it. It's like if you were coming to Christ and you heard about the gospel, or you heard about Jesus, you probably go talk to a church, go investigate it at a church and see what's going on. And then you'd find yourself surrounded by people who believe in the gospel, and all of a sudden you'd feel the love and acceptance of people who believe in the gospel, and you'd feel more inclined to believe it because you're around a lot of other people who believe it. That's the pollination. That's a a big step. But it keeps on. The the next one is the isolation of of the idea. We're talking more specifically about misinformation in a lot of this, but it does apply to all truth, all ideas that become values for us. This is where the, the idea becomes more of an identity for us. We start to lose connections with previous people in our lives. With, we lose connections with previous relationships. 
the problems of our real life start to pale in comparison to the sensational story and mission of this new ideology and the new community we're a part of, the idea starts to isolate us from people we had relationship with, with before. It happens in Christianity, by the way. We see this happen where people come into Christ, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they're embraced by the Christian community, and they start then separating themselves from the non-Christian community, the people who are leading them to do things they shouldn't be doing in the past. Then the next step becomes the defense of the idea. So now we have this idea, we have a community that supports it, and we've started to embrace it as our identity. Now we have to defend our newfound beliefs to communities, uh, to the communities of our previously held beliefs. So we have to go and defend our new belief to the people that we once agreed with and now we disagree with. And if you were here last week, you heard us talk a little bit about this, that the more we have to defend any idea, whether we agree with it or not, we actually start to embrace it and believe in it more. So if we picked two people, the illustration was, if we picked two people that had to argue for or against M&Ms, and one person was told they had to be for them, one person was told they had to be against them, and they had to argue against one another, those two people would both become more for and more against those ideas just because they're arguing for or against them, even though they may not feel that way prior to that experience. So this defense of the idea turns it more into a belief than just an idea. I want to say... Uh, this should be a warning for us. There's, a, there's a, a, a temptation to want to argue with someone who we see going off in a different direction. And we want to, we want to, we want to, we want to sit them down and have an intervention, right? And we want to correct their thinking. And we want to say, hey, you're wrong, and we, we want to come at them with all of the arguments for why they're wrong. And the desire behind that is good, but based on everything that I've read, that's probably the worst thing that we could do. Because what they will do then is they will have to defend their new idea, and then by defending their new idea, all we're doing is pushing them deeper into belief of that idea not drawing them out. That's the defense of the idea. The next to last step is, I don't even know if this is a word, but it makes sense to me. So when we're talking about looking through glasses, when we're talking about the way that we see the world, we're talking about a paradigm, right? A paradigm is the way, a way that we see the world. It's a worldview. It's, we look at the world through what we call a paradigm. So this, this, uh, this step I would call the paradigmation of the idea. It's where the idea goes from being a belief and an identity to becoming how we see the world, becomes the lens through which we look. We've already replaced our community. We've replaced the source of love, acceptance, and relevance and potential that we had in life 
from our old way of thinking and our old community and, re and replaced it with this new community and this new love and new life. And we've ultimately replaced our source of meaning, finding our meaning now in these new ideas and identities. And the last step would be the propagation of the idea, where the idea goes from being our meaning to becoming our purpose. So we take our new paradigm, new way of looking at the world, and now we go on mission with it. We take our new value to the world to try to bring more people into our reality. And so again, you can hear, like, hear ways that we've used those, the, those steps. That's, that's a big part of how Christianity works, right? That, that's just the, how the process works, but we can also see this happening in the world around us to this day with misinformation. Remember the first week I talked about Limnuscadianity? Anyone remember that? My fake cult that I made up? Right? So and I, I just talked about how Limnuscadianity, Limnuscate is the infinity symbol. That's the shape. And my basic argument was that the earth is neither flat nor round. It's actually infinite shaped. It's, it's shaped like a Limnuscate, like a figure eight. And that once you, once you cross over the connection, over this connection in the middle, you start going backwards in time in your own life. It's not time travel. You just start living your life backwards like Benjamin Button. And so, like, if you could find the intersection of, of, of these axes of Limnuscadianity, you could basically live forever by just going forward and backward a little bit in your life on a regular basis. And I, I theorized that this was happening around the Bermuda Triangle and that people found it there and they just kind of disappeared into this eternal abyss and, and we've never heard from them again. Well, if I, can, if I can seed the internet with propaganda for my idea of Limnuscadianity, for a long enough period of time, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, and I can just kind of plant articles, and, and if I can do interviews, and if I can just really get a lot of ideas out there over time about my, my cult of Limnuscadianity, if I can get a few people to come alongside me, to join with me, and we can create a real sense of community and identity around Limnuscadianity, if I can get a person of authority, a person with influence to endorse my idea through mentions, you know, in, in conversations and in interviews, through references or sharing it on social media, and then if I can create a compelling meta-narrative about Limnuscadianity, then I have a good chance at actually influencing lots of people to come into my cult. That's seeding the internet. I don't know if that's what people call it. That's what I call it. It's, it's where over a long period of time you just plant information online with all of these ideas and you just keep planting them there over time and, event, and you start linking back to them which starts to give you know, vitality or um, truth, it's the appearance of truth to your idea because, well, look at this, this article. This article is from 30 years ago. This article is 70 years old. This thing's been around for a really long time. It must be true. We do this for issue after issue after issue. And then all of a sudden you realize we've got layer upon layer upon layer of misinformation 
that we're looking through the world. It's not just one set of lenses. It's many, many layers of lenses that we're looking through to try to make sense of the world. It's like we talked about last week with the ladder of inference, how we take in information and then we filter it through everything in our own life and we hear what we thought we heard, which may not have been what was said at all. So we're, we're convinced that we, what we believe, all the ideas, and I've, I've definitely been uh, this person, where my ideas are absolutely 100% right. And I am justified to judge and condemn, which we'll be talking about next week, those who do not agree with me. Now, I'm going to try to go through this next portion really, really quickly. It's a pretty hard punch. I don't mean it to offend anyone in particular in this room. I'm thinking in general of, of the world at large. Remember, my, my aim, my reason for doing this series is that we will become a people of purple faith, that we will become people who bring people together instead of drive people apart. If we're going to do that, not only do we have to address the ways that we might be driving people apart in our own lives, but we have to be equipped with tools to bring people together. By purple, I do not mean compromising our values. I do not mean if you tend to be a red-leaning person that you have to become more blue because that's not purple, right? That means you're becoming more blue, not purple. Same thing if you're a blue, if you're a blue-leaning person, I'm not saying you need to become more red. That's not my point at all. You get purple when you mix red and blue together. We get purple when, when, when we're actually mixing the two together, which is what I think needs to happen in Christianity and the world at large, is we actually just need to come together unified by a higher mission and a higher calling as opposed to being divided by our politics and understanding. Where I think things have gotten really out of whack is that we've started to incorporate politics into our theology. It's been happening for my whole life, from what I can remember. Christians on both sides genuinely believe that their red or blue way of looking at the world is not only the correct way, but that it is 100% supported by Scripture. And most of us, on either side, whatever side we find ourselves on, and again, I do not have any judgment for either side, so please don't hear that in anything I'm saying. If pushed on an issue, we would be able to point to scriptures and make an arg a biblical argument for why our stance is the right stance. And at the same time, we could probably make a case for why we think the other side is wrong. So instead of seeking to remove the misinformed lenses through which we look at the world, 
We have instead opted for the Dwayne Wayne lenses and we keep putting on more layers. Willfully choosing to distort our perception of the world because we have embraced different layers of misinformation. And I know it's hard, it feels offensive to me as I'm saying it to say that we might have embraced misinformation as truth. But I think we all have in, in different areas of our lives, if we would be honest about it. I know I still have misinformation governing the way I see the world, and I want Jesus to take that away. We claim, we believe, that we're holding to Jesus' teaching, but the truth is we only hold on to Jesus' teaching in as much as it lines up with our red or blue thinking. Anything that doesn't fit in with our red or blue thinking gets justified away. The truth is, freedom only comes, what Jesus said, freedom from the slavery of sin, from the bondage of deciding for ourselves what is good and evil, freedom from that, that, that the chains and the slavery that that is to us, only comes by holding to Jesus' teaching. And it's a thorough teaching. There's a lot to Jesus' teaching. It's hard to boil it down to one or two things. You can summarize it sometimes with a couple of statements, but there's a lot to Jesus' teaching. More than enough for one lifetime. We need to become people, Christians, who are devoted wholeheartedly to Jesus' teaching. People who refuse to see the world as it is presented to us through the devil's misinformed lenses and instead be determined that we're only going to see the world the way God intended us to see it, which is through the light of the gospel of the glory of God, which is Jesus Christ. The only way for us as believers to look at the world is through the gospel, which is Jesus Christ in one person. That's why it's so important for us to study Jesus on a consistent basis, to just be enamored with who Jesus was and look at him, look at him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That is what he said of himself. He came from the Father full of grace and truth. That means he is completely filled up, 100% grace, 100% truth. So he is the most true thing that has ever existed. He is the most true human that has ever walked on this planet. So we are supposed to filter everything that we look at in life through the lens of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, and everything else becomes a filter that we don't need. We're supposed to be surrendered to Christ. supposed to be students of his word. The sad thing is, is that there is no matrix-like neo-upload of this truth into our minds where we instantly know kung fu and the truth of the gospel. But we do have the Holy Spirit, and one of the descriptions of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Jesus himself said, John chapter 16, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. That means he's a faithful witness. 
because he only speaks what he has heard. He does not add his own interpretation to things. If we're going to be faithful witnesses, we have to be just like the Holy Spirit, where we do not add to what we've heard. Instead, we are faithfully transmitting what has been taught to us through the Holy Spirit and through the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is a faithful witness because He only speaks what He hears, and He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, that is Jesus, because it is from me, Jesus, that He will receive what He will make known to you. So within the Trinity, there's a perfect, you know, a perfect flow of information. The Spirit does not say anything without it coming from Jesus. He guides us into the truth, which means we have to live lives of submission to that spirit and not the spirit of this age. A lot of conflict in the church has come out of our arrogant assumption that our understanding of truth is the right understanding of truth. We don't realize how ridiculously limited our, pers our perspective is on any topic. It's so hard to have I don't know if you've tried to just, you know, if you've tried to get a well-rounded view on any one topic. Once you get into something, you realize this is, this is you know, they call it a, a what's this, the Alice in Wonderland thing? Rabbit hole? Fall into the rabbit hole? And it just keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps going. We, even if we chose one topic, it's hard for us to even become experts on one topic where we could tr say that we truly understand all the ins and outs of one thing. And yet right now there's so much arrogance and so many camps that our view is the biblical point of view. And everyone needs to adapt to my understanding. But simply because I'm a Christian that holds that point of view, and because I know a lot of other Christians who hold that point of view, does not make that the correct point of view. What time is it? Oh, man, I didn't even see what time it was. All right. I'm sorry. So there's like 10 pages of notes that are going to be covered later. Let me end here. How do we practically move forward in this misinformation era? The devil is everywhere. He's the ruler. He's the prince of the air. He is at work in all forms of information around us. I promise you, no matter what news channel you watch, there is misinformation on that news channel, and the devil is behind the misinformation because that's what he does. He deceives. He leads people astray. He's been doing that since the beginning. First, I think we need to, like I said in the beginning, be committed, be devoted. I want to say it like I said it so I'm consistent. to intentionally seek to see what we can't currently see. Intentionally seek to see what we can't currently see. To trust that God will help us see things that we're not seeing and come to levels of understanding that we're not currently experiencing.
when it comes to those who disagree with us, I think what we need is to be people who love mercy. Yes, we want to do justice. We want to act justly. Justice is contingent on the truth, and that's important. We also want to be people who love mercy, who are compassionate, who look at everyone through the lens of the gospel and see someone who has been deceived like we ourselves were and have been deceived. We want to have compassion because if we're being honest, we're all misinformed on some level. There's still something about the way that we think that isn't right, and sometimes we don't know what it is until something happens or until someone graciously walks us through that. So we need to be compassionate with people who think differently than we do. We should not ever be condescending with our version of the information. One of the things, one of the top ten things people hate the most, according to a survey, is when you pat someone on the head and say, come on, you knew better than that. Take whatever idea you're thinking of, whatever ideas come to mind as we're talking, and imagine yourself talking to someone else and patting them on the head and saying, come on, you know better than that. You know better than to think that way, right? I mean, you don't really believe that, do you? It's one of the best ways to put somebody in a defensive position, which makes them become more entrenched in their ideas. Most people aren't intentionally misinforming themselves. We like to think that they are because of our need for villains, which is a whole part of what I didn't get to tonight is about story and meta narrative, and it's a huge part of what, you know, a huge part of misinformation. And so you definitely want to go check this out this week when I post the rest of it online. Meta narratives and stories are a huge part of what's going on in the world today. But most people aren't intentionally misinforming themselves. I would honestly say that most of us are victims of meta narratives and misinformation schemes and campaigns. Some people are victims of social media algorithms. There's actually a lot of evidence now, thanks to the whistleblower Frances Haugen and her exposition of a lot of things that have been happening at Facebook. There are actual victims of social media algorithms who are sucked deeper and deeper into misinformation loops because of the algorithm. So we see people and we see that, you know, they've been misinformed and not necessarily because they wanted to. They weren't intentionally misinforming themselves. But if it's not the algorithms, then there are, there are all of us have misinformation in our lives from our upbringing in one way or another. Things that are rooted deep in our thinking that were put there because of how we were raised. And there are ways that we look at the world through that in this life today. But that's misinformation. Some people have been victims of misinformed communities, and the community has led people astray. Most people aren't intentionally misinforming themselves. They get sucked in one way or another. So we should be compassionate. We should be loving. 
I think we should come alongside them in an unconditional kind of a way that loves them towards the truth, that accepts them for who they are, that we do not compromise the truth, we do not try to bend the truth to, to be more accepting of their position, whatever that might be, but instead we just love them without condition. We do, we do not require them to change in order to receive our love. And the reason we do that is because of the gospel. Because God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still living in rebellion against God, while we were giving God the finger, saying we wanted to do what we want with our own lives, you have no right to tell me who I am and I can be. I'm going to do it all myself. I'm going to decide for myself what is good and evil, what is right and wrong. While we were still in that state of glad rebellion against God, Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross in our place. He took the perfect lamb, the spotless lamb, took all of the sins of all of humanity, even though he knew no sin, he took the sin on himself and he bore that sin on the cross in our place and he ransomed us, setting us free from the slavery that we were trapped in. So if that is what Jesus did for us, if that is how Jesus showed us love, by taking our sins on himself, then maybe that's how we need to love anyone who we see in our life who's been enslaved to various forms of misinformation. We don't make them change to receive love. We love them unconditionally and trust that through that unconditional love, God will draw them in to his kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the kingdom. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the gospel. I pray, Father, as we head into the week ahead of us, that you would help us to be light, not a light that blinds people, a light that offends people, but a light that lights the way towards the truth for those who are outside being tossed back and forth in the sea. I pray, Father, that you help us to be the kind of people that tell the story of the gospel of Jesus and look for ways that we ourselves have embraced the story of this world and that you would set us free in our own lives so that we can set those free who are trapped themselves. In Jesus' name, amen.